It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. It is one of the most significant crises with Russia since the end of the Cold War. This winter, Russia has massed up to 100,000 troops along Ukraine's border. The U.S. is worried that Russia could invade its neighbor the way it did back in 2014. The war's been grinding on for eight years after Russia annexed Crimea and back to rebellion in the East. For us, it's absolutely mandatory to make sure that Ukraine never, never, ever becomes member of NATO. This is Vice News Reports, and I'm your host, Ariel Zimros. And I'm Vice News Correspondent Hint Hassan. It's around 10 a.m. on the 17th of January 2022, and we are on our way to the front line in Luhansk. This outpost is very small. There's only a couple of soldiers here. It is very, very cold. And even just being outside for an hour, I can't feel my hands or my feet, which really hammers home how difficult it would be to also fight a war um, and an offensive in these conditions. Hind Hassan, uh, you are just back from reporting for Vice from the front lines of the Ukraine-Russia border conflict. Uh, this is a region that, honestly, the entire world has its eyes on right now. What was it like being there? So as soon as we arrived into eastern Ukraine, we started filming just the streets and the area. And this old lady came up to us and asked us who we were and who we were filming for. And she seemed like she just wanted to have a conversation and, and talk to us. And when I asked her or you know what it was like to live in this area or to live in the east of Ukraine she kind of sighed and and said that everybody who lived here felt ignored and that they had been in this conflict for eight years and that things were pretty much the same she said the world was now looking at eastern Ukraine but we've been living this experience for the past eight years she said that they didn't feel they were being listened to by any of the politicians and that their thoughts and feelings were secondary to uh, a conflict that is very often debated from a political perspective. It's interesting to, to hear that sentiment because what we keep hearing in the news is that Russia has deployed troops to the border with Ukraine. And, and it seems, you know, from an outside perspective, like, while there have been tensions this whole time, it seems like that tension has reached sort of a peak level now. So is that assessment incorrect? Like, what is actually going on right now? Well, there's two different narratives that is coming out of this conflict. On one hand, you're hearing from the United States and from NATO that 
a possible Russian military offensive, a full-blown one, is imminent. There's no question that Russia and President Putin has continued to take escalatory, not de-escalatory steps. President Biden has ordered 3,000 U.S. troops to Eastern Europe. And NATO members have also sent backup military equipment and hardware. Lethal U.S. military aid has started to arrive. American-supplied weapons on the front lines in Ukraine's conflict with Russian-backed rebels. But then what we're hearing from politicians in Ukraine, so President Zelensky of Ukraine and also his foreign minister, is the situation is no more heightened now than it was last year. Uh, of course, we do not see a bigger escalation than it has been before. Because last year, President Putin had also sent a similar amount of uh, soldiers to the border. Yes, the, the number of troops has gone up, but I was talking about this in early 2021. There was a big build-up. I don't think the situation is, is more intense than it was at that time. And their rhetoric is, we are facing the same threat that we always have been facing. It has not increased since last year and we don't want to cause panic and we want people to stay calm. So you can understand why that's a bit confusing. Mm -hmm. Has the situation escalated or has it not? Which one is correct? So how did we get here? What sparked this most recent conflict? Russia has made a number of significant demands and they're pushing back on NATO's presence in the region. What they want is for former Soviet countries like Estonia and Latvia not to host NATO troops or armaments anymore. But the main thing that they have been pushing and talking about is that Ukraine should not be allowed to join NATO ever. For us, it's absolutely mandatory to make sure that Ukraine never, never, ever becomes member of NATO. And the United States and NATO responded by saying that's completely out of the question. Russia, you don't get to determine the future of countries like Ukraine and who is accepted into it or who's brought into NATO. We have inherent sovereign right to choose our own security arrangements, including treaties and alliances. And that answer is not something that is accepted by Russia. President Vladimir Putin claims Russia's a victim of Western aggression. And that is what sparked this current round of escalation and the, the discussions that were taking place. Russia is using this opportunity to put as much pressure on NATO to be able to control the future of its neighbouring country. What would it mean for Ukraine to join NATO? Like, why is Russia so deeply against that idea? Currently, what we've heard from NATO and the United States is that if there is a military offensive carried out by Russia, that NATO and the US would not send ground troops in to defend Ukraine. Hmm. But if Ukraine was to become a member of NATO, then that could possibly change because NATO operates under this principle of collective defense. So therefore, if one of the members of the alliances attacked, then 
all of the members will be expected to support them. So that's really why the issue is is such a big deal. You mentioned that this conflict goes back like eight years. So back to like 2013, 2014. Can you tell me a little bit about the history of this conflict? Like how, do, how did we get here? What happened? Yep, so as he said, the conflict goes back nearly eight years. The protests first began in Ukraine in 2013 after the then government, which was led by President Viktor Yanukovych, who was also known for his ties to Russia, rejected an important trade agreement with the EU that would have brought the country economically closer to Europe. Thousands protested President Viktor Yanukovych's decision to abandon a planned trade pact with the European Union and focus instead on ties with Russia. And instead, he chose to pursue a closer relationship with Russia. So what we saw after that were huge protests, which were also then fueled by widespread corruption and cronyism in the government. Euromaidan protesters clashed outside the Ukrainian parliament. The president himself had amassed an incredible amount of wealth, and that included his opulent secretive estate outside of Kiev, and he had spas and a helipad and cars and yachts and a zoo. We're on our way to Mizhigiria, where uh, President Yanukovych has his uh, personal residence, a huge estate. Two days ago, the protesters took it over and have been opening it up to the public. Huge levels of wealth. So we managed to make our way in. It's a huge estate. I mean, they say it's half the size of Monaco. Cost millions of, uh, of euros to make. So... These protests, which took in uh, a desire for democracy, a desire for um, Ukrainian independence away from Russia and uh, anti-corruption, they escalated and they led to what became to be known as the Revolution of Dignity or the Maidan Revolution in February 2014, when the protests spilled out onto the streets again. Police opened fire with AK-47s and sniper rifles, killing over 70 protesters in the bloodiest day of the revolution. 130 people were killed and the government was overthrown. Yanukovych and many members of his government all fled to Russia and the protests continued both in favour and against the revolution. Especially in the east and the south of Ukraine where there had been previously strong support for Yanukovych, it was here that these protests later escalated into the armed conflict that we see now. So it escalates into an armed conflict, and then what happens? So then the conflict takes us to a place called Crimea, which is a peninsula that's on the Black Sea, and it has a mixed population of Russians, Ukrainians, and Crimean Tatars. It is incredibly strategically important, uh, and Russia sees it as a very, very important area for its security interests. It's on the Black Sea. Russia has one of its um, you know, biggest navy fleets, and... Because of the history of Crimea and the mixed population of ethnic Russians and Ukrainians, um, it was also at the centre of pro-Russian sentiment and support for Viktor Yanukovych, which all led to Russia's decision to invade Crimea, claiming that they were 
going in and they were there to protect Russians and Russian speakers. What's been happening so far is that Russian soldiers have been going up to various Ukrainian bases and trying to take them over. And then there is also a very disputed referendum which is held where Crimeans, quote unquote, voted to join Russia. The people of Crimea vote on their future in a referendum to decide whether they'll rejoin Russia. It takes place as pro-Russian troops control the region. And then a few months later, two regions in Ukraine's east, Donetsk and Luhansk, there has also been protests and, and fighting, hold similar referendums calling for independence. These referendums are very much called into question by Ukraine, the US and a number of European countries. Over the coming months, Russia continues to support the separatists in the East, provides weapons, finances, and there are also allegations of Russian troops on the streets without insignia. And then for a few days in August 2014, we also see regular Russian troops and artillery cross into Ukraine. So we see Russia move its troops across the border openly into Ukraine. Amateur video shows alleged Russian battle tanks moving into southern Ukraine. All of this leads to a huge crisis inside the country and it sparks a conflict in the east of Ukraine that continues right up until now. The Ukrainian soldiers that we're with have now taken us to the front line of the Luhansk region. We just had to uh, run here really quickly because we're very close to where the Russian separatists are. So this is a very dangerous point. So Hind, right now, what does this conflict look like? Because it seems like for the past couple of weeks in the U.S., we've been hearing about the potential for war with Russia. But what you're saying is that to Ukrainians, there's been a war for years now. So Ukrainians in the East and the soldiers who were there as well, if you ask them about the prospect of a war, they'll say, well, we're already living in a war and we have been for nearly eight years now. So even though there have been ceasefires agreed, the fighting has just never stopped. And there continues to be regular ceasefire violations between Ukrainian troops and Ukrainian separatists. And it happens all the time. Since then, we've seen an estimated 1.5 million people displaced. 14,000 Ukrainians have died on both sides of the conflict. And Eastern Ukraine has been transformed. There are miles of trenches which are dug into the front line which divides the two sides. Entire villages have been destroyed. So the impact for the people who live in the east has been huge. But of course, if Russia does carry out an offensive, then they are the people that will be suffering even more. Right. With over 100,000 Russian troops at the border and Russia moving military hardware closer to Ukraine and uh, talk that was coming out of the White House and NATO and uh, from different European leaders that it looks like Russia could be planning a military offensive. My producer and I came to Ukraine in early January to uh, see what it actually looked like on the ground and what people in the east and in the capital were saying about this latest threat that was developing. 
We received news that three days ago, a young Ukrainian soldier was killed on the front lines of the war in eastern Ukraine. And when we were in Ukraine, another soldier, Ukrainian soldier, had been killed. His name was Viktor Kucherenko. He was 28 years old and he was killed by a sniper on the front line. And he's going to be buried tomorrow, which is Friday. And we're now making that journey from eastern Ukraine to his village of 600 people to attend his funeral. We saw firsthand the pain that is being caused by this ongoing conflict, and that's without a Russian attack or a Russian offensive taking place. That's after the break. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You know, when the first information about 100k Russian troops near our borders came, I was worried like everybody here. But still, don't forget about one thing. Ukraine has been living in a war since the Crimea occupation. For me, pressure from Russia is nothing new. The war in eastern Ukraine has been going on for eight years. But lately I read about new threats and troops drowned to our borders. It's a little bit hard to live calmly when you have a risk of invasion. The main change in my routine are that I now follow the news on the conflict closely. I also have equipment and supplies ready to take with me in case of an attack on Kiev. But I don't want to believe that attack will happen. Hind, you and some Vice News reporters talked to a bunch of young people on the ground in Ukraine. And it seems like they're all wondering the same thing that people around the world are wondering, which is, will there be a Russian invasion? I haven't made any preparations yet, but maybe I should. I don't know. The situation is so unstable that it is impossible to predict anything. And you also mentioned a funeral, right? I think it was a soldier's funeral. This was somebody who had died recently. Yeah. When we first arrived into Ukraine, we had received reports that two soldiers had been killed. And then the following day, which was the 11th of January, we received another report that a 28-year-old soldier called Viktor Kucherenko had been killed on the front line in the Luhansk region by 
a sniper, a separatist. Uh, when we received that information, our local producer called Gelia um, got in contact with the family and the family um, asked us to come. We turned up at this small Orthodox church in the village um, and when we walked in there was Victor's parents and family members around an open casket. People were stood around praying crying, um, holding each other, and laying down red roses onto uh, Victor's body. At some point, the priest turned up and he also prayed with the local community. As the day went on, more and more people came and there were hundreds there and then two busloads of soldiers also turned up to the funeral to pay their respects. Many of them were from his battalion. And that was when we met Timur Stetsky, who is a deputy commander um, with Viktor Kucherenko's battalion and who was on the front line on the day that Viktor had been killed. When we spoke to him, he then invited us to film at the front line in the Luhansk region where Viktor Kucherenko had served. Okay, so, so you went there? Yeah. The Ukrainian soldiers that we're with have now taken us to the front line of the Luhansk region where Viktor served as a soldier. We're told that he was killed around a 40-minute walk away from this area, but it's too dangerous for us to get there because we'd have to walk in open sight and there's a lot of snipers in that particular area. Deputy Commander Timur Stetsky told me that he had been a soldier since 2014, so since the conflict first began. And you know, he will have lost many fellow soldiers during that time. And so I asked him what it was like, or if he could explain to people who had never lived through a conflict or had never fought in a war, what it is like to lose a fellow soldier, someone you knew, someone who you would consider your friend as well. Can you explain to people who don't understand what it's like to lose someone at war? Deputy Commander Stetsky gave a really thoughtful and quite emotional answer that people usually expect soldiers or those who are in the army to be able to handle death um, and, you know, to be able to withstand it more than normal people do. But he said it's just as hard for them to lose someone that they, that they know, that they consider to be a friend and also to take their body back to the family. He said that Victor was excited about going home and seeing his family, and so to return to the village that he came from with Victor's body 
he said that was very hard to be able to face the family um, knowing that they won't see their son again. Ukraine is in such a tough position here. The country has been at war for eight years and now world powers around it are ratcheting up all of this tension. How are leaders in Ukraine balancing right now between a desire to preserve peace and this mounting threat of escalation? Well, it's proving very difficult for them to be able to balance uh, a message of calm, but also to talk about the threat that they're facing. We've heard from Ukraine's President Volodymyr Zelensky over and over again, uh, calling for calm and telling people not to panic. The image that mass media creates is that we have troops on the roads, we have mobilization, people are leaving for places. That's not the case. We don't need this panic. And he has insisted over and over again that the threat that Ukraine is facing right now at this moment has not changed from the threat that they uh, were receiving last year. Even leaders of the respected countries, sometimes they are not even using diplomatic language. They're saying tomorrow is the war. This means panic on the market, panic in the financial sector. But of course, that message is at odds with what we're hearing from the United States and from the White House, which has warned of an imminent threat of a Russian attack repeatedly. I sat down and I spoke to Ukraine's foreign minister, Dmitry Kuleba. Of course, we know who you are exactly, but we always do this for the purpose of the camera. If I could get you to say your name and your title, I appreciate that. I am Dmitry Kuleba, Ukraine's foreign minister. Great, thank you so much. Are we good to go? And I asked him about what President Vladimir Zelensky was saying. President Zelensky says that the threat level currently remains the same as it has done previously, and that hasn't increased. Do you agree with that? We do not underestimate the level of threat, but we've been fighting this war since 2014, and we understand that anything can happen at any moment. But we're hearing very, very different things from the United States. It sounds like two different messages. Do you understand that that could be confusing to people who are currently monitoring the situation? We are on the same page with the United States when it comes to the assessment of the threat. He said very clearly that Ukraine and the US They are on the same page. But what he told me was that President Putin has managed to destabilize Ukraine and have an impact on the country, on the economy, on the people without, and I quote what he said, even crossing the red line. While President Putin hasn't moved any additional Russian soldier or Russian tank into Ukraine, we already suffer economically and become weaker because of the panic spread in the society. So he he was saying that they still believed there would be a diplomatic solution to what is happening right now. So as far as a diplomatic solution goes, where are we in terms of negotiations right now? Russia has had various meetings with politicians from Europe, with NATO, with the NATO Secretary General, with the United States, and the first round of talks, what came out was that it wasn't very successful. A week of diplomacy in Europe concluded today with the U.S. and European countries meeting with Russia. But it is not clear if there's going to be a diplomatic path forward. 
the latest diplomacy session in Geneva, Switzerland, between Secretary of State Blinken and his Russian counterpart, reaching no breakthroughs. Russia's Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, said that Moscow doesn't want a war. But he also warned the West not to trample on his country's security interests. Putin rejected the U.S. and NATO's written diplomatic proposals. Putin saying Russia's concerns were basically ignored. Those talks are ongoing. We're also seeing foreign ministers and politicians from different countries traveling to Ukraine to show their support for Ukraine. The U.S. has withdrawn or is, is withdrawing its staff from the embassy in Ukraine, as has the United Kingdom. And so they seem to think that there is a very, very real possibility of the Russian attack. And so Russia has said over and over again that they're not planning on invading Ukraine and that that isn't what they're trying to do, but yet lining up 100,000 troops on the border and moving military hardware to your border um, is suggesting something else. Negotiations are ongoing and we're just waiting to hear what the decisions are or what will happen, and it could just change overnight. It's a bit of a waiting game. Thank you so much, Hind. Thank you. of being upsold at gyms my guy you're currently a base member for 90 dollars more i can upgrade you to our shred membership for 130 more you'll be a swole member and for just 300 dollars more you'll reach sweat platinum at planet fitness you'll get energy without the upsell never pushy always free fitness training and equipment for every workout it's fitness that fits your budget join planet fitness for just one dollar down and ten dollars a month cancel anytime deal ends friday may 10th see home club for details Thanks to correspondent Hin Hassan and producer Maya Rostowska for reporting this piece. Also, thanks to senior writer Ruby Lot-Lavinia for the use of her interviews with Ivan Vasiliev, Yulia Romanets, and Yana Barodina. And thanks to Professor Eric Heron at the University of West Virginia. Vice News Reports is produced by Sophie Kazis, Jen Kinney, and Sarah Cabello. Our senior producers are Ashley Cleek, Adiza Egan, and Sam Greenspan. Our associate producers are Steph Brown, Sam Egan, and Adriana Rodriguez. Sound design and music composition by Steve Bone, Cran Bandy, Natasha Jacobs, and Kyle Murdoch. Our executive producer and the VP of Vice Audio is Kate Osborne. Janet Lee is senior production manager for Vice Audio. Fact-checking by Nicole Pasolka. Our theme music is by Steve Bone. I'm Ariel Dumas. I know podcast hosts say this all the time, and I do it too, but it really does make a difference, so I'm going to say it again. If you could take the time to rate and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts, it would probably really help other people find the show. So, yeah, maybe do it. Vice News Reports drops every Thursday, so be sure to check back in next week. 